Hello, everyone. I'm Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research at J.P. Morgan, and thank you so much for joining us on J.P. Morgan TV. Today, we are here to discuss the outlook for the global housing market, where we're currently facing a great supply and demand imbalance. And we see very divergent prospects around the globe right now. We have in the U.S. market, a market that is essentially frozen with a lack of supply, but in China, we have oversupply, and we're seeing in commercial real estate oversupply around the globe. But one thing that is the common denominator is the great affordability crisis that is emerging across many parts of the globe. So taking a look at global housing prices, we've seen declines of in 50% of the developed markets and two-thirds of the emerging markets. But U.S. exceptionalism has been the story of 2023. Will this hold in 2024? Well, we had started 2023 with a view that we would see a modest decline in housing prices as we saw mortgage rates skyrocket. But what we actually saw was the lack of supply has contributed to a nearly six percentage point rise in U.S. housing prices this year. The U.S. housing market is best described as essentially frozen with existing borrowers locked in to their homes while renters are locked out. And we see that this trend is playing out elsewhere in the Americas, including in Canada, Mexico, and Brazil, where housing and real estate prices are stable or actually rising. Now, the downside to this is that U.S. housing affordability is at its worst in 41 years. Looking at other parts of the globe, China and the United Kingdom stand out for facing the greatest challenges. In China, there are concerns that the housing market could face a double dip. Um, even though the government has been providing some modest policy support. The UK housing market is most vulnerable due to the shorter-term mortgage structure and the recents. Now, commercial real estate across the globe is looking overvalued, and particularly the office sector. In the US, office rate vacancy rates are elevated and are now past the levels of the global financial crisis. So to examine the outlook and to discuss all of these issues, I am so pleased to be joined by John Sim, our head of Securitized Products Research, who's going to discuss the 2024 U.S. Home Price Outlook. Michael Reholt, who is head of Home Builders and Building Products to discuss the structural changes that are impacting the U.S. housing market and affordability and what these implications hold for home builders. Abigail Suarez, who is our head of Neighborhood Development at J.P. Morgan Chase. And she's going to discuss the impact of housing underproduction on communities and what policy recommendations she would suggest to increase the supply of affordable housing. We're going to then turn to other parts of the globe, to Megan Kelliger, who's a part of our international securitization research team to discuss the impact of mortgage resets in the United Kingdom as they're facing a very hefty refi wall. Ivan Zhu, our chief China economist, We'll discuss the outlook for China's housing and property market and how policymakers are responding to these challenges. And Chan Xin from our CMBS research team will discuss the outlook for commercial real estate, particularly the office market, which is facing high vacancy rates. So, John, let's start with the U.S. home price forecast. What is your base case under various scenarios for 2024? You've referred to the 2024 U.S. housing outlook as at the great freeze. Will re renters remain locked out of the housing market? 
Can you discuss the trends that you're seeing in household formation and the impact on demand and housing affordability? Great, thanks for the question, Joyce. So we expect home prices to be flat in 2024, assuming that the soft landing scenario that our economists have laid out is realized. Um, our, our outlook is actually titled the great freeze. And this refers to homeowners being locked into their home while we think renters are really locked out. For example, the average mortgage rate that homeowners have now is about 3.75% versus the current market rate is right around three, uh, seven, and three, seven and a quarter. Um, that's just as of today. So there's really no incentive for these borrowers to refinance. If you think about it, like there's several hundred basis points out of the money. So the only real movement you're seeing in the market is from you know, death, divorce, or uh, job relocation, really. Even the traditional uh, incentive to take out equity, which we would call cash out refinancing, where you can just refinance because your LTV has gone down enough, take some more money out and use that you know, to make a change to build on, add, add onto the house or whatever. Um, even that's not happening because why would someone take their low mortgage rate and refinance into a higher rate when they can actually go and get a closed end second or a HELOC um, that would give them a better combined rate. So there's just a significant amount of lock-in, really unprecedented. Um, so that's really kind of part of the, 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 the supply side where you're just not seeing homes being put out into the market. Uh, additionally, uh, renters can't afford to buy. So their, their cost to income is over 60%. And that just looks at their medium renter, renter income to the uh, price of, of, rent, of owning a, a medium price home. So you, even if you look at renter distribution, the, only about 20% of the renters would, would fall into what we would call class A renters. And typically, they have a similar income to homeowners and they could actually afford to buy. But the problem is that uh, as you uh, continue to go to look at uh, how renters uh, go through that dynamic, whether or not they have a down payment uh, or other factors, uh, it, you can even be less than that. And if we stay higher for longer, which has been part of the narrative or concern, that 20% uh, of borrowers might even be, be less and certainly be diminished over time. So uh, even then you can look at say outside of that. So say you're outside of renters, you typically have had uh, institutional or traditional investors, mom and pop investors that just go and buy property uh, to be that incremental demand outside of their traditional renter was looking to buy even they're being squeezed out of the market because given where mortgage rates are and relative to the home price, they can't rent the property out in a way that gives them a reasonably positive ROE. It's very, very challenging right now. Um, we've, we see the ROEs less than 5%. So I think that market's being squeezed. Um, in fact, you can argue there's some supply that could come out of that as borrowers who've been hanging on hoping for home price growth. And if they don't get it, then they, they could see some, you could see some supply into the market. Thankfully, it's not really meaningful, so we don't really think there'll be a lot of supply there, but there is, there is some of that that could come out in a regional basis. Um, the other part of it, too, is supply, is that we've just been building at a slower pace than household formation. So we, we see about 2 million uh, households formed every year. Generally, we only have new homes delivered to the market, and that's including multifamily, mobile homes, everything, about 1.5, 1.6 million. So you're just not building enough to push the supply number up. Uh, so we, that supply will be very constrained for, for quite some time. Well, John, thank you so much for setting the stage for this discussion. Let me now turn to Mike Ray Holt. Mike, I'd like to start big picture and talk about the structural changes that you're seeing that are supporting the housing market. 
Will there be any relief forthcoming on housing affordability? And how quickly can home builders add supply? And when do you think that these housing starts can improve? Thanks, Joyce. Uh, appreciate being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Regarding uh, the housing market itself, big picture and structural changes, while some investors remain focused on the current affordability challenges in the market, ultimately, we believe that demand continues to exceed supply as, ev as evidenced by the still effectively record low levels of single family existing home inventory, currently around 1 million units versus prior troughs closer to a million and a half. Currently, we view a portion of this current tightness, uh, a key element of our positive industry outlook as being structural in nature, which should continue to support the new housing market going forward across different demand backdrops. Of note, single family existing homes for sale, um, we believe have benefited from, in terms of its tightness, from roughly 400,000 units being permanently taken out of supply due to the single family rental uh, market, uh, it's in, this, in effect, the large institutional investors that have entered that market over the past 10 to 15 years since the prior great financial crisis has really transformed um, you know, that, that end market. Um, you can also look at it from investor share of purchases of uh, existing home sales. Uh, according to Redfin, that represented 16% of total home sales in the second quarter of this year, um, which is in line with a long-term increasing trend um, uh, since uh, the beginning of the past decade when investors only accounted for 6 to 8% of the market. Uh, so we expect the single-family rental operators and investors as remaining a key part of the market given continued rental growth and low rental vacancy rates. Uh, in terms of any upcoming relief from uh, on housing affordability, aside from rates declining materially near term, which is viewed as by most as a likely scenario over a longer term period, affordability should remain challenged at least over the next six to nine months as, as at current rates uh, the composite and first-year buyer affordability indices are at near record 30-year uh, lows. However, we do believe there are several silver linings around affordability. First, home builders currently offer permanent rate buy-downs of 1 to 200 bips lower than the current mortgage market as incentives, thereby bridging the gap for many for home ownership. Uh, moreover, the cost to own an existing home versus renting while currently at a 31% premium uh, compared to a long-term average of 8%, uh, the cost to own a new home versus renting is, is at a premium that's only slightly above its long-term average. Uh, moreover, the national home price to income ratio uh, declined slightly earlier this year and is only 10% above its long-term average with key home building states such as Texas, the Carolinas and Georgia being only five to nine percent above their long-term averages. Uh, lastly, our rate strategy team does expect the 10-year Treasury to, to decline about 90 bips from current levels uh, over the next 12 months, while moreover, the spread between the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year fixed rate mortgage 
is almost at rough, it's at roughly 300 basis points of a, of a spread versus normally 170. So to the extent that rates compress uh, as well as that spread compresses, you can see significant relief over the next couple of years that would also help affordability. Uh, in terms of how quickly can home builders add supply and when would we expect housing starts to improve, uh, many of the public builders have already started to talk about 2024 and having unit volume growth of at least 5 to 10%. And that's based off of a combination of new community openings as well as improved cycle times, construction build cycle times, um, that have improved significantly in 2023 as supply chain challenges have moderated. Uh, as we noted in our recent housing industry, I'm sorry, our housing forecast, um, driven by a combination of coincident indicators that are mixed and leading indicators that lean positive on a net basis, uh, we do expect single family housing starts to improve modestly from current levels up roughly 5% next year from the most recent four months average. Thank you so much, Mike. So it looks like we still have um, a lot of these supply constraints that will be with us for some time to come. So I'd like to now turn to Abby to talk about how this is um, affecting, how housing affordability is affecting local communities. So Abby, the J.P. Morgan Chase Policy Center has partnered with up for growth to examine the current state of the housing market and housing underproduction. Can you share some of the key findings and the trends that are driving the market at the national level? Thank you for having me, Joyce. That's a great question. Housing availability increased in the top 25 major metropolitan areas for the first time in nearly a decade, according for Up for Growth's 2023 update on the state of housing underproduction report. The news might seem positive at first glance, but it reveals a worsening crisis caused by chronic underproduction and high interest rates. Homeowners with low interest rates are essentially locked in, while renters are locked out by increased ownership costs, resulting in the worst housing affordability crisis in the US in nearly 41 years. And while mortgage rates may have peaked, they will continue to put pressure on affordability without doing much to address the housing supply and demand imbalance. Housing production is expected to remain low and controlled, meaning we're building at a slower pace than household formation. The consequences for families are severe and certainly not distributed equitably. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition's 2023 out-of-reach report found that women Black and Hispanic workers are disproportionately impacted by the shortage of affordable rental homes. Elevated inflation, in particular, has contributed to recent surge in housing costs while also impacting individuals' purchasing power. The J.P. Morgan Chase Institute research shows that real cash balances across all income levels and racial groups reach a three-year low in March 2023. The Policy Center is monitoring these trends and partnering with experts across the firm, as well as external leaders to help develop solutions. In October of 2022, 
JP Morgan Chase committed 15 million to increase the supply of, of climate resilient affordable housing. As part of JP Morgan Chase's strategy to combat the housing affordability crisis, the firm is supporting organizations advancing innovative housing models that can be successfully scaled through the country through testing new models and collecting lessons learned. These commitments aim to increase the housing supply of sustainable and affordable housing for households of color across the US. In addition, part of addressing underproduction must focus on preserving the homes that already exist, as well as the wealth that families have generated through their property. The Policy Center is deeply engaged in efforts to help the under-resourced households maintain their homes across generations. This is an essential but often overlooked component of housing market stability. Thank you so much, Abby, for those insights. We're going to now turn to the China housing market, which kind of started the whole discussion on what is going to happen in the global housing sector as it's been going through a downturn since 2021. So Haibin, let me turn to you. Now, China has unveiled a number of demand easing measures to support the housing market. Do you think there's initial additional initiatives that could be announced, particularly on the supply side, that would support developers? Will policymakers take greater action or stay with the current approach of tolerating a housing market correction? And do you think there's a chance of a double dip for the housing market in 2024? Uh, thanks, Joyce, for the question. Uh, let me first start with where the Chinese housing market is. It has the deepest downward correction uh, since the second half of 2021. And a double dip is now a, our, new, our new baseline scenario for China's housing market. If you look at the number uh, from a peak to bottom, New home sales has come down by 50%. New home starts has come down by nearly 70% and the real estate investment down by about 30%. So the weakness in China's housing market is now two-sided. On the demand side, uh, the very weak, weak home sales reflect the uh, weak expectation uh, for home price, weak expectation for income and employment, and also uh, home buyers concern about home delivery issues. Uh, the, uh, since, uh, uh, since mid-August, the policymakers has uh, uh, stepped up the demand side easing, uh, particularly relaxation on the mortgage policy, and actually this measure aimed to improve the home affordability and unlock upgrading demand. Uh, but so far, the policy impact has been quite modest. Uh, on the supply side, about two-thirds of China's high-yield high bonds, uh, property bonds, or two-thirds of private developers have defaulted. And most surviving private developers still facing uh, quite serious uh, liquidity stress. Uh, policymakers recently uh, actually uh, talking about funding support for the developers. They instruct banks to provide unsecured loans uh, for working capital purpose. Uh, but again, the impacts uh, remain to, see, to be seen. Remember, this is not the first time of a such window guidance, but banks are reluctant to step up lending to developers. Within the housing market correction is not complete. Uh, our property analysts look for another 3% decline in the new home sales and 5% decline in new home starts and also new home completion uh, in 2024. The current housing market correction is not only cyclical, uh, but also structural. On one side, uh, fundamental demand in the China's housing market will continue to uh, come down uh, because of the population aging, a decline in the new household formation, growing birth rate and a lower 
housing upgrade and investment demand. On the other side, uh, on the supply side, despite a sharp deceleration in new home starts and the continued efforts to stabilize, to prioritize home delivery, uh, inventory overhang is still quite serious. New home under construction has come down by nearly 20% from the peak, but it's still more than five years of new home sales. The issue is uh, more concerning if we take into account the additional supply from the second home market. So lastly, that uh, the, very, uh, the recent news reports uh, that PUC may consider a one trillion PSL package to support the public housing and urban village developments in our view is very important to watch out. Uh, if officially confirmed, it may mark an interesting shift in China's housing policy direction. Uh, in the optimistic scenario, if one trillion funds is mainly to utilize to purchase undeveloped lands or unfinished projects from private developers and then convert them into private, uh, in private housing, uh, this would, on one hand, uh, help reducing uh, housing inventory and mitigate developers' home delivery and uh, cash flow pressure. On the other hand, it will also partially offset the decline in the commodity uh, housing investment. And also, if this uh, one trillion uh, the uh, PSL becomes a multiple-year uh, program, and this will actually could be a game changer. In that case, the housing market will stabilize, although not rebound. Back to you, Joyce. Thank you so much, Ivan. Still a very challenging situation where policy support will, I think, continuously have to be rolled out. So, Megan, I'd like to now turn to you to talk about what's happening in the UK housing market. Um, we've seen that international housing markets have been under pressure in Europe with having some of the higher shares of floating rate borrowing. The UK stands out. How many UK mortgages need to be refinanced in 2024? And how is this refi wall being managed? What does this mean for the mortgage affordability ratio and for home prices going forward? So based on data from the Bank of England, we estimate that about £188 billion sterling of fixed rate mortgages in the UK are going to reset to a variable rate in 2024. This includes about £83 billion of two-year fixed, £14 billion of three- to four-year fixed, and £91 billion of five-year fixed rate mortgages. While this $188 billion refinancing need is lower than the $225 billion that are faced reset in 2023, it still represents about 14% of outstanding regulated mortgage stock, which is a sizable percentage. For more context, the $414 billion of fixed rate mortgages facing reset in 2023 and 2024 combined represents nearly a third of outstanding regulated mortgage volumes. To date, borrowers have managed the refinancing burden well. This has been aided by a combination of a resilient labor market, healthy wage growth, pandemic excess savings, but also forceful changes in spending habits. And ultimately, we think that these factors will need to continue to provide support in 2024. In addition, just want to note that the ability to extend the mortgage term at refinancing, so out to 30 to 35 years where possible, can also ease the affordability strain to a point, and that's something that we have seen borrowers do in practice so far. 
In addition, the recourse nature of lending in the UK does also help as borrowers lack an incentive to voluntarily default, and the jurisdiction is also relatively borrower friendly. So repossession is really a last resort and lenders do have a responsibility to work with borrowers, provide support and come up with a proactive solution to keep them in their homes. So the decline in swap rates from their early July peak has helped mortgage rates steadily come down over the past few months. So quoted two-year fixed rate mortgages are now in a five to five and a quarter context from a variety of high street banks and building societies versus a peak well above six and a quarter percent just a few months ago. So while the trend is moving in the right direction, we think it's important to stress that mortgage rates do remain much higher than the ultra low rates that were seen in sort of 2018 to early 2022 when these mortgages were originated, and those were ultimately sub 2%. So accordingly, we think that the continued mortgage refinancing need in 2024 will put further strain on sort of the collective consumer affordability as even more borrowers are moving onto fixed rates that are several hundred basis points higher than their old rates. So by our estimate, refinancing from a 2% mortgage into a 4.5% mortgage rate, which is still below current levels, means that an additional 8 to 10% of household disposable income is going to go towards higher mortgage payments. This takes the affordability ratio, which is simplistically mortgage payments as a percentage of take-home pay, up to 40%. If we then increase this refi stress up to 6%, so going from a 2% mortgage to a 6% mortgage, which is where rates were just a couple of months ago, that pushes the affordability ratio up to 45%, which is sort of the pre-GFC peak. Um, we think that that sort of proportion is potentially unsustainable for borrowers for a prolonged period of time. Um, and last, just want to note in terms of house prices, the correction that we've seen to date has been more muted than our expectation. So nationwide index is showing national prices as of October 2023 down about 5.2% from their August 2022 peak. Um, the ongoing lack of supply does remain supportive of valuations, but we ultimately think that house prices can come under further pressure in 2024 as high mortgage rates continue to weigh on purchase activity in particular, and we do ultimately look for a peak to trough decline closer to 10%. Thank you so much, Megan, for those insights on what's happening in the UK. Well, let's leave the housing market now and turn to commercial real estate, which was really in the headlines at the beginning of the year. So, Chong, commercial real estate looks overvalued across a lot of countries now, particularly for the office market. In the U.S., we've seen vacancy rates um, that are above what we saw during the global financial crisis. So what are your expectations for default rates? And do you see systemic challenges that could affect the regional banks? Thanks, Joyce, for those questions. So we, we've seen a pretty significant demand shock occur in the office market very quickly, at least by series standards over the last three years. But it's taking a while for rent and occupancy uh, rates to adjust to, uh, to lease expirations, which are more gradual in nature. As of Q3, the U.S. office occupancy or vacancy rate stood at 13.3%. 
which is now 3.9 points higher versus pre-pandemic levels and 50 basis points higher than the GFC peak. So we're already past the GFC peak. We also like to track the total availability rate, which is a more comprehensive measure of available space, including direct vacancies, sublease space being marketed, and new construction space coming on online that isn't pre-leased. That measure stood at 16.6% as of Q3, uh, which has also surpassed the GFC peak at this point. So 22 of the largest 50 office metros now have availability rates that exceed their GFC highs. So the stress is broadening out gradually. Um, And as for defaults in the market, a combination of much higher interest rates and fundamental challenges have, have made refinancing office loans extremely challenging even for higher quality properties. Um, in CMBS, for example, where we have most data visibility, uh, serious, serious delinquency rates for office loans stood at 5.1% as of October. That's up from just 1.4% a little more than a year ago. Uh, we think this number, as we look into 2024, will balloon to over 10%, uh, which would be in the vicinity of the GFC peak. Um, and as for lifetime CMBS office loan defaults, that can exceed 20% in our view, uh, producing cumulative losses of about 8% in our base case. Um, and, and, and at that level of losses, however, uh, most CMBS investment grade bondholders should be shielded from bond write downs. Um, but CMBS office loans only account for less than 20% of system wide office loans that total about $1 trillion. Uh, another 20% or so sit with insurance companies and roughly 46%, the bulk of it, sits with the banks. Um, that said, these numbers may seem large, but banks in aggregate do not actually have very large concentrations to office loans. Uh, banks in total own about $2.9 trillion of Siri loans, including multifamily loans, construction loans, and loans backed by owner-occupied properties. And only about 15 to 20% of this total are office loans. Um, that is in contrast to CMBS, where 30% of the market are, are exposed to office loans. Um, and further, banks like other balance sheet lenders in the space have varying levels of recourse to borrowers as well. So we, spe- we suspect losses to the sector will be less significant than what we are projecting for CMBS, which is a non-recourse product. So it tends to be riskier of the financing options out there for Siri. Uh, but if we, but even if we assume similar levels of office loan-related losses for banks as CMBS, uh, again, 8% in our base case, it's still very difficult to see how this issue can be a systemic challenge for the banking system. We think uh, banks would generally manage this risk over, over time through loan modifications and reserve bill. Thank you very much, Chong. So these pressures aren't going to go away that quickly, but it doesn't seem like it's systemic. John, let me come back to you. So you talked about the base case scenario for home prices under a soft landing scenario, but if there's an alternate economic scenario, a recession that plays out in 2024 or a deeper recession in 2025, how much downward pressure would this put on U.S. home prices? Correct, Joyce. Uh, Our our base case home price forecast is based on a soft landing uh, that we we talked about earlier. Uh, This is where zero HPI growth in 2024, that's basically where we think home price is going to be. This is just flat for the year. Um, And again, that comes to that sort of frozen market from supply and demand 
But if mortgage rates do hit 6.5% by year end, which would be linked to our rates forecasts for 3.75 by year end on the 10 year, then we could see actually a modest increase in home prices marginally, you call it, you know, maybe two or 3%. So call the range, you know, it's, it's still frozen. You're very, very small movements there. But just to put it in context, if we do get that, that movement and the Fed does start cutting in the second half of next year, we could maybe see a little bit of recovery there. Um, However, in the mild recession scenario that uh, our economists talk about, or what they usually refer to as boil the frog, uh, that's where uh, we, we end up in a recession in 2024. Uh, you see an increase in unemployment, but maybe not the full 2 to 3%, only like 1% to 2%. So it's a more a mild recession, if we will, but that could pressure home prices even in that scenario. Very, very mild, though, maybe down 5% uh, in that scenario. If we see bigger movements in unemployment, maybe you could see at the downside to that being down 10%. Um, but then you have the more aggressive and deeper recession scenario. When you go look at their tree, if you go look at the publications that uh, Bruce Kasman had published on uh, more aggressive and deeper recession, which is where the economy stays resilient uh, through 2024 and actually forces the Fed to hike rates again. And in that scenario, you're looking at maybe a 9% mortgage rate, 6% unemployment, 7% unemployment, that sort of territory. That's a deeper recession. That becomes very disinflationary. And you can see home prices decline you know, 10%, maybe on the, on the downside, 15%. So still what we're looking at is you know, half of the, of the financial crisis. So also keep in mind, and, and you could see this in our, in our, um, our Outlook publication, uh, that Home prices traditionally have actually really only declined in, the, in a recessionary period through the financial crisis. Other recessions, the declines were very, very modest, and actually we saw in a few cases even an increase in home prices. So this time around, given the challenges around affordability and where mortgage rates shake out, we could see some pressure, but nothing even close to these uh, GFC-type uh, levels. Thank you so much, John. We just cannot rule out the possibility that there are other scenarios other than the benign scenarios that we have seen. Mike, let me come to you. Um, U.S. home builders um, you know, are finishing 2023 with really strong performance. What are your estimates for home builders for 2024 and 2025, and which companies stand out in your view? In, in terms of the home builders themselves, uh, we do estimate roughly 10% order growth in each of the next two years, as well as despite gross margin contraction of roughly 100 basis points as profitability normalizes, we still expect EPS growth of roughly 10% in each of the next two years, driven by a combination of revenue growth as well as some share count uh, contraction as builders also uh, focus over time uh, on returning some capital to uh, to shareholders. Um, using a, a conservative multiple in our view, a little bit below a mid-cycle average, uh, a little under eight times, we still see upside of roughly 10% for the group, while our overrated names typically average more uh, closer to 30% upside potential. Uh, our top names on the larger cap builder side are Pulte and Toll Brothers. Uh, both trade on a PE basis 10 to 15 percent below its larger cap peers, despite for Pulte having above average margin margins and returns, as well as for Toll having roughly inline margins and returns. Moreover, on a price-to-book basis, we see a significant 
uh, discount for Toll Brothers, trading it currently at roughly 1.4 times versus its larger cap peers at 1.8, despite having, again, roughly an inline return on equity. While for Pulte, uh, it trades currently roughly in line with Horton, uh, DR Horton, at roughly 1.9 times, despite having, despite our outlook for a return on equity uh, roughly 500 basis points higher in 2023 and 300 basis points higher in 2024. Uh, that That is, again, comparing to DR Horton. So th those are our top picks. Thank you so much, Mike. It looks like another strong year for a number of the companies that you cover. So, Abby, I have a final question for you. What are the policy center's top recommendations for ways in which the private sector can partner with the government and nonprofit organizations to increase the supply of affordable homes? Over the last few decades, we have seen public-private partnerships emerge as the most successful methods of producing new and preserving existing affordable homes. In most cases, it is economically infeasible for the market to produce homes at prices affordable to households with lower, lower levels of income or wealth. That is why solutions that leverage the unique expertise of the public, private, and nonprofit sectors are so essential to addressing these challenges. The Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program is one of the best examples of a federal tax incentive that leverages private capital with on-the-ground expertise of affordable housing developers and partners. Over the program's more than three decades, it has been responsible for producing or preserving more than 3 million affordable rental units, which accounts for the vast majority of all affordable rental housing produced or preserved during that time. The Policy Center supports expanded resources through the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program so that public-private housing ecosystem can expand production. We're also looking at new recommendations to build on the success of proven programs like the Low Income Housing Tax Credit to fill ongoing gaps in the market. One such policy is the proposed Neighborhood Homes Investment Act, which would create a new federal tax credit to subsidize the cost of acquiring and rehabilitating single-family homes and economically distressed communities. While the low-income housing tax credit has been tremendously successful in the affordable rental market, there's no comparable program to produce or preserve affordable single-family homes. The Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit will fill that gap and help revitalize the housing market in economically distressed communities while also increasing the availability of affordable homes for purchase. And beyond financing sources to support the development of new housing, the Policy Center is laser focused on regulatory reforms and incentives to ensure localities are creating an environment conductive to housing production. Decades of land use and zoning policies that impede housing production have contributed to the current shortage. Loosening these restrictions will have to be part of local solutions to build more homes for people at all income levels. Thank you so much for helping us to think through solutions to this problem, Abby. Thank you everybody for joining us and a huge thank you to John. 
to Mike, to Abby, Haibin, Megan, and Chong for sharing their views and taking us around the globe on the direction for global housing market and to discuss some of the challenges with housing affordability. Well, we've seen that mortgage rates have likely peaked in the U.S., but are going to remain high with little relief in sight. This means that housing affordability will continue to be with us as a problem given the supply-demand imbalance. Um, we see this problem as even more acute in the United Kingdom as more borrowers are forced to reset at higher rates. And China's housing correction stands out because there still is a risk of a double dip to home prices and greater policy support that will be necessary. And we will see a U.S. commercial real estate market that remains under pressure, but at this stage does not seem to pose a systemic risk. Thank you so much to all of our speakers and to all of you for joining us today. Stay tuned for more episodes of JP Morgan TV.